Okay, good afternoon. We're going to get started. Welcome to the library. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. Um, today, I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Amani Wazwaz, who's a faculty member in communications and literature. She, uh, we're very honored to host a series of talks by her um, that's sponsored by the Mosaics Grant, which is um, through the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. Um, she's going to be talking about um, Islamic civilizations, scholars, and I think to me, um, some kind of blind spots in the typical story of Western history that I think is worth celebrating and um, talking about. So I want to thank um, Dr. Wazwaz for her time and thank you all for coming. Right, thank you everybody. Can you hear me? Everybody, okay. I want to tell you, uh, magicians. Magicians from long time ago, from tribal societies, asked a lot of questions. They looked around them they looked at the world around them and they thought it was magnificent. It was beautiful. And they sought knowledge about this world. They sought to know. And they learned interesting pieces of information that most people usually did not know. And they wanted to take this knowledge and keep it and bring inventions to the world to make life easier on other human beings. The magicians of these tribal societies the magicians of long time ago of the ancient world are the scientists of today. Another magician, another kind of magician, scientists, are the alchemists. The alchemists, by definition, sought to change regular materials, base materials, into high quality materials, into gold. They wanted to bring improvements to human life. They wanted to make medicines. So alchemists are also magicians. They're also scientists as well too. In our human civilization, in India, and in China, and in Egypt, alchemy began at the same time with these three cultures not having any discussions with one another at all. What was on the mind of these three uh, cultures? They were thinking of doing this. Let's take regular metals and let's elevate them into something higher. Let's take regular base metals and turn them into gold. Let's take human beings and let's make life so great for them that they live forever. And these cultures all were thinking of the same thing at the same time, but not communicating because this was during ancient times. Now, ancient times, I'm going to skip to medieval Europe. From the 13th century to the 18th century, Europeans were also very fascinated with alchemy as well, too. Let's change substances. Let's make changes in the world. Let's better life around us. A great deal of fascination. But look at what I did. I gave you a brief overview of the ancient world, and I jumped to Europe, to the me medieval world, from the 13th century to the 18th century. And there's something in the middle that I have to look into, that we have to look into. What about Islamic civilizations? What about that? What did they contribute? Medieval Europeans were very fascinated in the 12th century with the translations that were coming out of Islamic civilization. 
They were just fascinated. They were taking Arabic texts and translating them to Latin. But then what happened later on? What happened with this fascination? They looked at these books, they learned from them, and then they either forgot willfully or they just plain forgot. And this great professor, Professor Lawrence Principe, who is both a chemist and who also studies uh, history, the history of chemistry, and who also uh, devotes time to trying the experiments done by alchemists, he had this to say. Although the medievals recognized the wealth and importance of Arabic scholarship, that esteem later eroded in later generations until the contributions and even the names of influential Arabic authors became confused, forgotten, or even suppressed. So some was willful forgetting and some was just forgetting but the knowledge was there and they used that knowledge. One person that I would like to take a look at for our presentation, our talk today, is a gentleman by the name of Jabir ibn Hayyan. Jabir ibn Hayyan lived from 721 to 815. His origins we're not quite sure of. Some scholarly texts say that he was a Persian Muslim. Others say his family origins actually trace back to the Yemen. He's actually a Yemeni Arab who then, his family came to Kufa near Baghdad. These are his, the technical knowledge, the technical information about him. His father was a pharmacist. Jabir ibn Hayyan worked at the royal court of the caliph, the Muslim caliph, Harun ibn Rashid. From the spiritual aspect of his life story, Jabir ibn Hayyan was a very spiritual man. Before doing his experiments, he believed in praying because in praying, he believed that God would open up the door to him understanding greater truths about life. He was a mystic. He followed a Shiite brand of Islam that was mystical. He was also Sufi, known as the mystic. And what he said was, he followed this Imam. An Imam in Islam is a prayer leader. And this Imam taught him, gave him the secret knowledge about alchemy. And that he took it, he learned it from him, the teacher, took it and gave it to the student, and he used this information to continue the knowledge. This was the spiritual part of his life story. What he also did was the following. Jabir ibn Hayyan, also people became very, very fascinated with him, that later on they would make uh, experiments and they would assign it to him and they would write his name on it, Jabir. He ended up having a lot of work ascribed to him, but with careful scholarly study, people can pinpoint his original work. He wrote roughly what is considered 3,000 books, but if you take a look at it, it's roughly three what we would consider chapters. 
he spent a lot of time experimenting. So he's mystical. And he does have this teacher. And he does have these spiritual beliefs. Okay, that's the spiritual aspect of his alchemy. But you know, Jabir ibn Hayyan was also very interested in true experiments, in observation, and in keeping records of what he was doing. He was very interested in quantifying what he was doing. To our mind in this day and age, in the 20th and 21st century, this is fine, this is normal. But for somebody from 1721 to be thinking this from the 8th century, this is phenomenal. So Jabir Hayyan says this in one of his works. He says the following, the first essential in chemistry is that thou should perform practical work, practical work, and conduct experiments. For he who performs not practical works or makes experiments will never attain to the least degree of mastery. Notice what he's saying. Experiment, do practical work, have the theory, but then do something with it, test it out. The testing out is very significant. Case in point, let's take a look at his theory of what everything in the world is made up of. According to Javer ibn Hayyan, writing in the 8th and the early part of the 9th century, everything in life is made up of different quantities of sulfur and mercury. Everything, different proportions of it, go to making what we have in the world. Different levels of purity, different quantities, go to making different substances. He said, if you can bring very pure sulfur and very pure mercury and combine it together, if you could bring the hot, dry element sulfur with the cold, liquidy element mercury in the proper portions, in the proper purity, you are going to come up with gold. This is what he thought. Now, looking at this, we think to ourselves, wait a second, this is not true. We know this is not true. But Jabir ibn Hayyan in his lab in Kufa was looking and saying, wait a second, I'm making all these experiences, uh, experiments, and every now and then, as I'm burning all of these different products, something smells, something is stinky. It must be coming from the sulfur, okay? He's thinking through this logically. We know this not to be true. We know not everything in life is made up of sulfur and mercury, but he is thinking about it. He's trying all of this out. He is writing his experiments, putting this down on paper, writing down the measurements, quantifying. The fact that he's quantifying, I cannot stress enough how much this is a big deal for science. Now, if you look at the history of science, a lot of scientists that we deem are brilliant had these theories that later proved not to be true. But thanks to them, humans can go and try 
their formulas over and over and over again, begin somewhere and then disprove it. But he laid down the groundwork. Observe, experiment, quantify. I'm going to go back to uh, uh, Professor Lawrence Principe once again. Like I mentioned to you, he's a chemist and he's also, uh, he studies the history of science and he actually does the experiments that were created by these alchemists. And he had this to say, that Jabir ibn Hayyan was really thinking right. He put us on the right road because he was thinking of inquiry, experiment, and quantifying. And this is what Lawrence Principe had to say. He says this, Jabir's underlying aspirations are actually quite similar to our own. His fundamental goal was to classify and quantify natural substances mathematically so that practitioners could work with them in precise, quantitative ways. Take his formulas, take his recipes, and replicate them once again. Seen from this perspective and in context, the system is actually an advanced attempt to standardize and understand mathematically what he saw as the intrinsic qualities of substances. Now this is pretty much like a wonderful praise to give somebody who lived in the eighth century. There's more that Jaber did. Yes, he experimented, he tried to quantify and thought about the substances, but what he did was he also came up with chemical techniques like crystallization, evaporation, calcination, and sublimation. He also came up with distillation, okay? And this is what I want to go into. He came up with this instrument that he called the alembic, okay? And it comes from the Arabic, and anbik. And what it is, he used here ceramic pottery or glass over here, and it's connected to a tube that goes into another container. He heated a substance, and the substance with the lower boiling point would go first, it would condense right into here, and then the vapors would, would uh, get caught into the tube. And from there, they would gather over here in the second container. He called what gathered over here the spirit. He called it the spirit. The idea in alchemy, if you want to take a look at it metaphorically, is we human beings take ourselves and we purify ourselves ultimately. So this is the metaphorical meaning of it alchemically. But what he did with the science is this. He put a substance here and then purified it and what came out was the spirit. Now Jabir ibn Hayyan, he put wine. He put wine and he wanted to see what happened with wine. So it gathered over here, distilled it, and came up with this substance, and he said, you know what, the substance 
can be used as an antiseptic. It can uh, clean wounds and it can be used to be put in lamps so that people, it can light people's ways. He did not understand that he was gathering ethanol. He didn't. He didn't understand that he was creating alcohol. Now, in Muslim societies, in Islam, alcohol as a drink is forbidden. Now, we don't know when in history somebody decided to, hey, let me try it out and drink what's in here, the alcohol that is in here. But what we have in certain Arabic poetry is there are references to wine and drinking. That is present, okay? We have later on another great physician and alchemist by the name of Al-Razi, who's like, wait a second. What Jabir ibn Hayyan was doing was gathering alcohol in here, okay? Now, for Muslim civilization, it, it's forbidden to have that, but what they did was they used it for different purposes, but there were references to it in poetry, okay? So look at this. He has this pla uh, practical application, and distillation did become popular later on. He also does this. He describes methods of coloring glass. He also discovers that if you use manganese dioxide on glass, you can actually take out the green out of it and purify it. Purify the glass so that it's beautiful and cl crystal clear. Around this time when Jabir ibn Hayyan was alive, Muslim communities were making uh, glass that was colored and that had beautiful decorations on it. This kind, what you, we see over here, is called a luster painting. And what happens is you put a dye onto the glass and you have a chemical process in such a way that the dye goes into the glass and it's fixed over, over onto the glass. Scholars, some scholars say there's evidence that Jabir ibn Hayyan described this method. Others say it's inconclusive. We're not sure yet. But what we do know is the following. He did describe colored glass making. He has roughly 46 to 50 formulas and recipes for how to color glass. Now, other civilizations are also doing this. But what Jabir ibn Hayyan did was he wrote this down. He tried it out. Have this kind of chemical with this kind of chemical. Bring it together. If you look like really quickly, just like he does have numbers in there, do this, do that. Mix it all together, and you come up with beautiful glass, red, green, blue-colored glass. So this contributed to the beauty of Muslim civilization in that you saw colored glass in mosques where people put, put them together. There is an interpretation for this, and the spiritual interpretation is in order to see the beauty of this color, you got to have sun. And the sun is symbolic for God, and that when God sh shines his light, then we could see the color. Then we could see the color 
come through. So this is the symbolic interpretation. Now, there is a lot of, uh, in mosques, you get a lot of ceramic tiles that are also beautifully colored as well too. This defines a lot of Muslim civilization as well too. So color, apply it, beautify the world. He also described other chemical processes. For example, the prevention of rusting and the tanning of leather. Other things as well too that he described. He described furnaces, whole furnaces for distillation, smelting and refining of metals, glazing of ceramic tiles, and this is what we see on the mosques, uh, preparing steel, making dyes and varnishes. Okay. Some of these processes we find in other civilizations, but he also is describing them, so, you know, mostly on his own which is pretty much very like impressive for somebody to be doing a lot of this. Now, I want to tell you, everything that I have been describing, his spiritual background, his theories on sulfur and mercury, um, the instruments that he came up with, the alembic, the chemical processes, the industrial processes, is it alchemy, is alchemy really different from chemistry? Is there really a split? And this is my question. Because usually alchemy is thought of as the philosophy of matter and chemistry is the science of the matter. Is there really a split between both of them? What do you think? Is there a split? Okay. So Jabir had all of these spirit, the spiritual background, believed in God, believed, you know, um, his knowledge came to him from God and from his mystical teacher. And he went on and he had these chemical theories that he was trying out. And he went on and he developed distillation and evaporation and he developed actual chemical products. Um, another scholar by the name of Jim Al-Khalil argues, no, there really is no split. There is no split whatsoever. Because in looking at Jabir ibn Hayyan and other scientists, Jim Al-Khalili says this, Alchemy is about observation, experimentation, and theory. That's what alchemy is about. You observe, you quantify, you write things down. This is what Jabir ibn Hayyan did. This is what other alchemists later on did as well too. So wait a second, maybe there is not really that split that we think of. What Jim al-Khalili also does is this. He looks at the Arabic. He looks at the root words. Where does our word for chemistry come from? Does it come from Egypt? Chem means ancient Egyptian. Chem means black. Or does it come from the Greek? Scholars are not really quite sure. Or is it coming from Arabic, chemia, which is 
laboratory operations with materials. Is it coming straight out from Arabic or is Arabic taking from the Greek and adding, building onto it, which is what scholars do? What is going on here? Or is it Kenya laboratory operations with materials or is it coming from the Arabic wor word kamiya, which is the study of quantities, which is what Jabir ibn Hayyan was doing? Is that where it's coming from? Okay, scholars are still debating over this, but it's good to think about, take a look at the different cultures that did contribute to chemistry. There's something we also need to know about Arabic. For Arabic, an means the. And what we have here is, in Arabic, if you say kimya, even till this day and age, people understand you're talking about chemistry. And if you say alkimia, people still understand that you're talking about chemistry as well too. And so what happened was, in the 12th century, when people, when Europeans were taking these Arabic alchemical texts and translating them, they took alchemia and they changed it. Do you see down here? From here? And this is what they changed it. They Latinized it to this, keeping the al part of it. Alchemia, alchemia, and changing it right over here from the Arabic into the Latin. They copied it, okay, with minor changes. Some of them in Europe later on took the L out, okay? So we really need to take a look at the history of the words. And then Jim and Khalil says, take a look also at the way the words were used. And when did people decide on a split? Jim and Khalidi says, it's only in the middle of the 18th century that there was actually a split in the definition. So you have 1751. The definition now, alchemy, the art of transmuting metals, the art of taking metals and attempting to change them and to change how they are so that hopefully humans could get at gold. This is what chem alchemy came to be known as. But there was a moment in history when this happened, when there was this sudden shift in thinking. 1750, chemistry, chemi, the science which concerns separation and the unification of the principles making up bodies but Jamal Khalil stresses, people were not thinking this way. For hundreds of years, alchemists thought of themselves as people who dealt with the transmutation of material, but also people who experimented and who quantified and who observed. This was not a split in their lives at all. Some of them, yes felt they had these spiritual leanings. The spirit and the science was well connected together. It's this moment in history that separates them when in reality that shift 
was more than likely not necessary. For example, you have Al-Razi, who is known in the West, and he is a very respected physician. His works were used roughly 600 years. Uh, his medical texts were used for roughly 600 years in Europe. He was also an alchemist. He also replicate, he also was, uh, like Jabir ibn Hayyan, he also wanted to do experiments and he did some of uh, Jabir ibn Hayyan's experiments. He took alchemy and he really sh moved it into the experimental science field. He stressed observation a lot, but in his life, chemistry and alchemy were not divorced from one another. So for Jabir, alchemy and chemistry were very much intertwined with one another. For Al-Razi, the same thing as well too. In fact, Ibn Sina, who's also very much respected in the West as well too, he was a physician, he was a philosopher, he was also an alchemist, but he also had issues with alchemy. He felt the only good material in the world was the material that God created. You cannot take substances and attempt to change them. Something wrong is going to happen when people play around with nature. Okay? So these were his views. And some Europeans agreed with him. And some Europeans joined the debate along with Ibn Sina. Some agreed. Some disagreed. One individual, one European who disagreed was Roger Bacon. Okay? And he felt, you know, no, alchemists can use knowledge to affect real transmutation, to affect changes in the chemical substances of materials so that new material is created. So they get on to this discussion with one another. And we see it in this day and age. How much can we play with nature? How much can we do that? Can we change chemical substances and still have a sense of wholeness. They were talking about it. They were very fascinated in medieval Europe with alchemy, and they translated Ar Arabic works into Latin, uh, Latin works, into English as well, too. I'm very interested. I, I love the old feel of this translation. I love uh, the way that they describe Jabir as a famous Arabian prince. Uh, they had beautiful, beautiful ways of inscribing this and also uh, drawing. Over here, I picked this up. Usage of glass flasks in alchemy, series of woodcuts of chemical and distilling apparatus from the works of Jabir ibn Hayyan, the most famous Arabian prince and philosopher, faithfully Englished by Richard Russell, London, 1678. going to move ahead. The first translation <laughs> was by Robert of Ketton, who says, um, since the alchemia is and what its composition is, your Latin world does not yet know, I will explain in the present book. He's the first one to translate an alchemical text and present it to Europeans who became very fascinated with this. 
Roger Bacon, whom I referenced earlier, was also very interested and felt, I like this. I like this kind of alchemy. I like the practical application of this. He says the following. There's a, oh, but there is another alchemy, operative and practical, which teaches how to make the noble metals and colors and many other things better and more by art than they are made in nature. He had no problem improving on nature. And science of this kind, he said, is greater than all those preceding because it produces greater utilities. So he found something to make use of, to add on to. Okay. Now, according to Jim al-Khalili, Jabir ibn Hayyan, he revolutionized the way that science was carried out. Alchemist, philosopher, he did a lot. He wrote so much. He gave the world plenty, plenty to think about, plenty to replicate. That was the magic of his contributions. Thank you so much for attending this conference. <laughs> Thank you. Any questions? Any of the books that I mentioned? Yes. Okay. Can you please write down House of Wisdom? House of Wisdom is by uh, Jonathan Lyons. And he looks at the interaction between Europe and the Islamic civilization. And it's a very readable book. It's very interesting. I also want. Lawrence Principe uh, wrote a book on alchemy as well, too. And there is an article uh, in the Smithsonian that you could find online where he talks about this. Oh, I know what you're thinking of. I wish I can get a hold of this as well, too. Write it down and see if you could get a hold of it. I would love to get a hold of this one as well, too. I want to tell you also, if you look on YouTube, this one's great. On YouTube, Jim Al-Khalili did, did a show on Jabir ibn Hayyan. If you want to get his name down, wait a second. Okay. All right. Jim and Khalili, A L K H A L I, Jim and Khalili. If you put his name on YouTube and put Jabir ibn Hayyan or Alchemy, he talks about the practical side of Jabir and what and uh, the chemical. Uh, advancements that happened that occurred in Islamic civilizations. That show just runs for a half hour and it is so interesting. Welcome. Other questions? The librarians are also happy to help. Okay, yes. 
just that the librarians are happy to help find if you wanted to get more background reading. Feel free to ask at the round desk. We're happy to help. That's true. Questions? Thoughts? Any brochures? No. No, no brochures, nothing but like any questions you have, I'll be happy to answer as best as I can. Thoughts, then if no questions, what about thoughts and comments? Comments. Yes, Leanne. Yes. Did people, did kids like that? Or was it different? Like today we would say, don't do that. Right, right. Was that like the way it was if you were honoring someone, you would say it was theirs? Yeah. I want to tell you, their culture, ancient culture or the culture of that time, it's so different from our culture because what you have is sometimes uh, people who were writing scholars in Islamic civilization, okay, they would adopt Greek names in honor of the Greeks whose works they were reading. It was an honorary title. So for him, he became very famous. And so afterwards, he was like dead. A hundred years, two hundred years, people were making experiments and then they were writing Jebed on it. And then scholars are like, wait a second, this can't be the original Jebed. Because at that time, this particular book was not translated. This is a later Jabir. This is somebody else who liked him so much that he adopted his name. You know, and this is what they do. And then this is like something that it's our culture now that we don't like this. But back in the day, they just did it. It makes it harder for scholars, uh, for people, hist um, historians of science, to go through and sift through all this stuff, it, it makes it a lot harder because what you have to do in this case is the following. You have to know chemistry, and you have to know Latin, and you have to know Arabic to try to get dig through just to understand the Jabirian material of body that he created. It's very fascinating. The gentleman behind, you had a question? No, I was a comment. A comment, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you. I I was fascinated and it's like when I look at something like this from far back, I'm like, oh wow, somebody thought of this. Somebody thought of manipulating, you know, material chemical substances and, and the idea of purifying it, I want to purify, I want to separate things from one another. I mean, it's genius, it really is genius, and, and I agree with you. In our day and age, we think this is more modern, but no, it, it dates back quite a long time ago, and Jabir ibn al-Hayyan, you know, came up with this, came up with this equipment, came up with other pieces of equipment as well, too. I agree with you, this is very fascinating, yes.
Yes. Right. Yeah. From only from only 18, and then you have like the House of Wisdom cultures that came afterward was just phenomenal. I mean, the first word in Islam was well, Iqra was read. Yeah. It was Iqra, it was read. That's what it what it was. It was the command is to read. And then after uh, after Islam, about 150 to 200 years, there came about these caliphs, these Muslim kings and leaders who encouraged knowledge from people of different faiths. And they had, they created the House of Wisdom, which was a library. It was an academic library designed for research. And this is after Jabir. The House of Wisdom came after Jabir's time, and they would encourage scholars to do phenomenal things, wonderful things, and even like one caliph, Caliph Ma'moon, would sit down with them and would talk with them because he believed you gotta have debate. You gotta talk to people. You gotta, you gotta sit down with them. Science is not just to be you know, in your lab and just doing experiments. You gotta engage people in discussion and talk to them. A library is not just books. You gotta open them up. You gotta engage people and talk with them. So that's, that's a great point that you made. Others, things that were going through your mind when you were? You were talking about the house of wisdom. Yes. Basically was a translation of all the previous content, particularly the Greek content. Yes. That the sources of the Greek and the Arabs and the Greek. Yes. Including the language, the Arabic yes. language. Yes. The first language that had the alphabet. Yes. Of history of mankind. Right. And that the early Latin was also in Aramaic. The Greek alphabet up to this moment, they are Amar Aramaic. Hebrew is a dialect of the Aramaic. So what was, and they, they had been some kind of denial that they are contributed much, but all the Greek culture was basically translated from Greek into Arabic, and in the Middle Ages was translated back into various Latin and European yes. cultures. Why is that denied? Why are people deny that they are contributing nothing to that process? Without them, I believe that the Greek culture would have been lost forever. And the Greek culture up to now, food, music, language, they are more Middle Eastern than, than Western. But they say that what, you know, the Greek, Greece, Greece is sort of the early, or the earliest Western culture. I disagree with that. I, th I think Greece and the Greek culture is part of the Middle East as a whole. Yeah, I hear you. And you know, if back in the day you knew Greek and Arabic, you were highly prized by the Muslim caliphs. You were well paid in the House of Wisdom. The Muslim caliphs would send out people to gather books from different libraries and different lands and bring them together and translate them and, and translate. Many of the translators were either uh, Christian or Jewish. Yes, yes. So they, you know, everybody was the same way in Spain. It was a Muslim civilization in Spain, which lasted 800 years. The uh, golden age of the Judaism was in Spain. Because yes. They were given so many rights that even up to now, some people don't even have. Yeah. 
it, they were, there was this big translation movement, and what people did was they would read the original Greek and the translation, and they would improve on it, and they would add on to it. And they did not just translate, but they actually engaged in conversation. See, and what is also denied is that there were additions to these translations. What some people, if they even do credit, like that they did translate, they just say that all they did was translate. But the truth is no, they added on, they studied. And I, I don't know, like I, I read different people and their remarks and, and for me, I'm like, wait, where is the shame in reading books and commenting on it and creating your own ideas? Isn't that what scholarship is all about? And so I think to myself, wait, why is it that these people are denied doing that and they're seen as less of scholars? To be a scholar is to read and to read a lot and to engage in a discussion and then to create your own. This is what they were doing in the House of Wisdom, you know? And yes, you are definitely right. When we say Islamic civilization, we're talking about the rulers who ruled and who had subjects from different faiths. And this is what we're talking about. There were people from a variety of different religions. Okay. So that's a great point. Anybody else? Thank you, everybody. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. Appreciate it.